Welcome to Lithium Ion Rocks, Season 1, Episode 4, Dead Flower Valentines. My podcast partner Rodney enjoyed Valentine's Day in Cape Town with Brian Ferry, hence the love is the drug. Last week saw not so much love from Livent and Namaska, but the hatred spewed upon Namaska, in my mind, was a bit much. I will share my views at length on that topic shortly, but uh, first, let's talk about the Altura funding last week. I do like uh, the prospects for Altura, but they did seem to have an aggressive financial structure that they went into commissioning with, and um, some slight hiccups. The, uh, The sort of market talk is perhaps slightly low on the capex up front, and now having to pay a little extra on the back end, they should be close to their target production by the end of March, but needed the capital to get there. It was good to see the chairman following his rights and some of management. There seems to have been a, a small uh, acceptance by the institutions and then a, a, a SPP for the shareholders. But nonetheless, the shares held up pretty well. And according to the CEO, they should be very close to their targets by March, April. Let's just put that some of those things in context. Uh, Altura raised money at 13 cents with a three-year half warrant at 20 cents. And this compares to when they fully funded themselves about 15 months ago and raised money at 13 cents. So they, you're right, they had a relatively aggressive leverage. They took a substantial amount of debt, secured debt, and they actually went back to that, apart from this equity raise, they went back to their debt holders earlier for another, it was originally 100 million US. I think they got another 15 from the debt providers, but ran into some additional working capital issues, couldn't take any more debt, and at an unfortunate, inopportune, you know, bad Mr. Market timing, had to come to market while they're already in production, but not yet at, at nameplate. But as you said, the chairman, Alan Buckler, writing a $15 million check uh, into like a $30 million deal, that's a, a very big vote of confidence. If they can reach their um, targeted cost of production in the near term and reach 220,000 tons, which they should, a lot of it coming from the, um, from the fines, from the tailings, so they should be headed for four times EV EBITDA be based off a, a midterm price of about $650. And if you look at the low mica and the low iron content and above six as a grade, I don't think that's necessarily unreasonable. And they should get their cost of production down as they push volume through and sort of spread out the fixed costs across a bigger tonnage. So if they reach nameplate of, say, 200, 220,000 tons at a 650 price, and they're at you know two hundred fifty, three hundred and fifty dollar uh, you know operating cost, which is what they expect to be, or as articulated in their feasibility study. They brought in Primero, um, the consulting firm that has fixed a lot of problems uh, in in Western Australian hard rock. So I have a fair bit of confidence in Cam Henry and his team at Primero. The math, as I see it, is as follows. 
Altura will get to 200 to 220,000 tons of capacity, hopefully by March, assuming this capital is enough and they sort out all of their issues. Assuming a 650 price and somewhere between 250, which was their definitive feasibility study expected operating cost, and let's say 350, you know, if they're over that, we should be having, Altura should have 300 to $400 margin per ton, which is 60 to $80 million in EBITDA. Altura's market cap today is about $190 million U.S. based on 2.05 billion shares outstanding at $0.13 cents and the current exchange rates. Uh, with $115 million in debt U.S. on top of that, they're about a $300 million U.S. dollar enterprise value. If they hit 60 EBITDA over the next kind of 12 to 15 months, it's trading at a five times EBITDA. If they hit 80 you know, they're at 3.75 EV to EBITDA. I don't think either of those numbers are particularly demanding, uh, factoring in they're likely to uh, look to grow to a stage two. There's been some talk lately uh, about spodumene prices falling, and uh, I've been talking about that for quite some time since my visit last year to Altura, Pilbara, and Kidman. I saw uh, a very large amount of spodumene where there wasn't enough conversion capacity you know, forthcoming, but that's why Altura had 550, you know, price floor in their contract, and uh, also a lot of their their contract, Pilbara's contract, Mineral Resources contract, are are tied offtake contracts are tied to carbonate and hydroxide prices, not spodumene prices. So to a degree, all of those companies are protected, and and as is Alliance. So there is, um, you know, Galaxy. I think is vulnerable for lower spodumene prices, and I think we'll see that in store. But as I said in an earlier podcast, I believe the offtake partners to Altura, Pilbara, Mineral Resources need these mines to be in good production. And uh, these are high-grade, you know, spodumene 6% production with low iron and, and, and mica content. So I think we're going to, we're seeing a dichotomy. I mean, those who are kind of saying, oh, the spodumene market, you know, they're going to crash and it's going to be a problem, um, you know, need to recognize that there's a quality differential within spodumene as there is in chemical production. And uh, again, the, especially Ganfeng's the partner for Altura, a partner of Altura and is a big partner for Pilbara and is an even bigger partner for mineral resources. So, those three Western Australian spodumene producers, I think, will earn a pretty good margin and are trading at not demanding multiples um, at all. Alliance uh, has a different offtake situation. They have no debt, which is an important um, thing in this day and age as we see Namaska and Altura struggling under debt. So they, they have that in their favor, but uh, the transparency of, of their cost and, and their mine life, uh, I'm still a little bit... Um, not fully convinced on uh, Alliance, though I do believe they'll get a reasonable price. Roskill has been among the most prescient in their forecast. Uh, there was a chart that they showed with hydroxide premium to carbonate, you know, as far as the eye can see, and uh, but also a very sharply falling spodumene price. So this was in the Namaska kind of documents when they were raising capital last year, and a, a lot of people were... Uh, a little bit surprised to see that sharp drop, 
in Spodge. I mean, Deutsche Bank, uh, Chris Terry and his team also uh, have been flagging an oversupply of Spodge. I mean, you know, resulting potentially again to, to a, a 500 or 550 price. But it's very important to differentiate that number uh, from a, a grade perspective and also very importantly for the relevant companies that are selling spodumene, uh, what's most relevant are their offtake relationships uh, and their and their pricing mechanism, uh, assuming that those pricing mechanisms will be adhered to. And uh, I know a lot of people, you know, some have history and experience with working with Chinese, working with Japanese, working with uh, Koreans and, and otherwise, and almost all universally say, if the partner's Chinese, you know, your, your price floor, just forget it. You know, they'll just renegotiate and you'll be um, in trouble. Uh, Japanese, you know, a contract is a contract. I think like Americans, um, that's how they're viewed. Uh, Koreans, uh, somewhat, somewhere in between. Uh, I've reaffirmed this uh, through a conversation I had with uh, a friend of mine with, with long experience uh, in China and, and in the mining sector. The question is, Ganfeng is Chinese, right? Will they renege on the contract agreements that they have with mineral resources uh, if Spod, you know, and, and Altura and Pilbara? Uh, I, I don't think so. I, I would hope not, right? Because the whole Ganfeng is the most Western, you know, private, you know, company. Uh, I think that would be not a good thing for their branding. But uh, other offtake partners, I don't know. Um, you know, Burwill has been displaced, so this Jiangxi in Alliance. I'm not sure about them. You know, the five uh, companies that Galaxy advertised are, are their offtake partners. Uh, I don't know. There, there's been very little transparency there. So you know, groups like General Lithium. Yawa uh, and a few other converters. And it's very intransparent, the converter capacity in China, and why is it taking so long? I mean, the, a couple of years ago, everyone was saying, oh, the Chinese, yeah, don't worry, they'll absorb all this spodumene supply. There's a lot of uncertainty in China. You know, there's a lot of capital constraint. I and mean, we saw that Ganfeng had to raise money outside of, in Hong Kong, and groups like General Lithium didn't fund as they were supposed to, um, uh, Pilbara uh, earlier in, the, in their financing. You had Altura, they raised money from Janner Optimum Nano, you know, 40 million one day, and then the next day, you know, that company's bankrupt. So it's, there's a lot of uncertainty in China, and this was reflected in the Livent conversation as well from December, you know, and, and Ora Cobre was saying it. I met these companies in, in November, and they were all optimistic going into year-end negotiations. But uh, what's happened is you had the Lunar New Year, you still have the trade war negotiation going on, you have all this talk of China slowing down. So there's a great deal of uncertainty in China, which I think is explaining quite a bit of the weakness that we're seeing. I think this is temporary. I believe you know the trade negotiations continue. There's back and forth. I, I'm pretty optimistic we're going to get some sort of a trade resolution. And then following that, with the Fed kind of on hold and the U.S. capital markets doing you know very well in the first six weeks of the year, I think just the the relief of some uncertainty in China will also have. I, I think some of the policies we're looking for EV wise may be on hold as these trade negotiations are being discussed. And once there's a resolution, you're probably going to get some sort of clarity, some sort of potentially some stimulus in China. 
they take very seriously pollution and environmental considerations. So that's going to continue. They will make investments in areas that are important and strategic. Continued growth in the EV and energy storage sector because it's a pollution issue, it's an urban issue, and it's a you know industry of the future, you know China 2025 issue. So hopefully we'll get some resolution on the trade front. I think that will be positive for the Chinese market. It'll be positive for the sector. And you're seeing it even some of the Chinese equities that are correlated to this. Some of the companies I mentioned that I'm watching, certainly Ganfeng, Tangxi, the Shenzhen market has woken up a bit in the last few weeks as the U.S. market has woken up. Uh, it's interesting, you know, Joe Lowry, Chris Berry, th- these are among the, the, the bigger bulls in, in my mind uh, in lithium. I've had some great education from them. The, the top-down bet, you know, you want to be in lithium because of this demand growth is, you know, it's, it's a one-way bet in my mind with a, a medium-term view. The, the fact that there is sounding so much caution in 2019, there's been a number of quotes by them and others. I take actually as a as a positive sign in the near term. When the optimists go bearish, the blood on the streets, it's the capitulation. I don't know. I could be wrong. Maybe this recovery will only happen in 2020, or maybe it'll happen in 2021. Live you know, however bad their quarterly results were, and we'll talk about that a little bit. And they weren't terrible, but you know, they were not great. Uh, the stock didn't really respond. It, it kind of touched its all-time low, but bounced off. Let's turn now to Namaska, which had very bleak headlines. Seeking Alpha, Namaska's lithium project turns into a disaster, a train wreck of epic proportions. The Global Lithium Podcast, train wreck in Quebec. Cormark, downgraded their target price to 55 cents from $2. Canaccord to 45 cents. 8 Capital also dropped it from 250 to 140. All of them smell blood in that the company is being forced to raise capital on a short time frame in a depressed market. Therefore, a lot of dilution is forthcoming. We had Guy on the show, you know, not only uh, what 2 3 weeks ago. You asked him directly, are you fully funded? He kind of said yeah, we think so. A lot of people raise the issue of this being an untested technology. He does have a, a they call it a phase one. They don't call it a pilot plant producing 500 tons of apparently battery quality material that all of the customers are interested in. Two engineering firms and five consultants later. You know, the interesting thing is that 375, not much, you know, apparently equipment is pretty much in line and apparently no change to the flow sheet. So you're literally talking about some of the civils and pre-work, which is an unbelievable um, blowout. Where do we go from here? This is a, a project that I, I've always rooted for. I became a shareholder in October, or 50% down from where SoftBank invested. I fully expected them to need some additional capital, but I thought it would be more like a Altura-like consideration later in the process, you know, maybe later this year, and uh, maybe it would be 100 to $150 million. I didn't buy a, a very large position. Uh, I would take a portfolio approach to uh, going back to our Mr. Market scoreboard. We have a baker's dozen of uh, 13 stocks in focus. I think it's prudent to have 
probably a mix, you know, 60% in the big cap companies, um, you know, maybe 20% in the uh, funded companies and, and 20% in the early exploration companies. So in, in my allocation to Namaska was quite small and, and always thought that I, I could prospectively add to it uh, in a positive scenario and possibly in a negative scenario that we're, we're experiencing now. I leave an open mind to potentially participate in the financing once we hear more detail. Uh, the question now is going forward. You know, everyone's asking. I saw, you know, the Cormac, they're talking about a full equity raise of 28 cents. A problem in junior equity market funding has been very weak equity prices. And very weak equity prices translate into investors saying, well, how are you going to raise $500 million to finance your project if your equity is only $100 million? That's a tough question. So when companies are putting together feasibility studies, pre-feasibility studies, there's a inclination uh, to lowball the estimate, right? Because you got to tell investors this is fundable, right? And that you'll, you know, you'll get some debt. So there, Namaska has had a giant headwind over them for years. Uh, there have been so many naysayers, including the ones who are, you know, most seemingly celebrating prematurely a failure. Does Namaska matter? I think it does. I think the world needs conversion capacity outside of China and Australia in OEM jurisdictions. Mining's hard, and mining in cold climates is hard. I wrote this uh, cold, hard facts in uh, my summary of Namaska uh, rocking in the free world in June of last year. I said I'd prefer to be a debt holder than an equity holder at the dollar price that they price that equity, and, and I still believe that. Nevertheless, I did invest in Namaska at the, toward the end of last year, thinking going into this year, you know, the hard rock hydroxide advantage uh, being non-China focused and uh, expecting a cost overrun. Nevertheless, and factoring that in, I just, I just saw the stock as incredibly undervalued relative to its potential. And, and, Let's articulate its potential, right? If they're producing at 30,000 tons in a couple of years and the price is 14,000, you know, for hydroxide and they're producing at their very low cost, you know, even if it's 4,000, that's 200 to $300 million in cash flow. If they were to get a live end multiple, which they should get a live end multiple, right? Because if you're Argentine proprietary technology versus Quebec proprietary technology producing the same tonnage, you should get even a premium, I would argue, for Namaska. So assuming a 10 to 12 times multiple on you know, 200 to $300 million, you know, you're talking about a multi-billion dollar company. You know, 30,000 tons is 50% more than Livent is producing today. So the prize for Namaska you know, is that. And doing the math, on even with this 375 million Canadian, 280 million US, capital structure is, is difficult. The capital structure is difficult because the equity has been under pressure for so long because there have been such big headwinds against Namaska and the belief that Namaska could actually take what is a 
exceptionally high quality mine, the Wabuchi mine, nobody is questioning, you know, that that's a good mine. And it's producing a very good 6% plus concentrate and using their process with the phase one plant has 20 customers who are taking this. I spoke to another person uh, this week who is very well connected who said like, Namaska needs to get funded, right? The, the market, the hydroxide market needs these tons. LG Chem needs these tons. So I was surprised when I, when I heard, you know, I listened to the Global Lithium podcast and they were, you know, kind of talking about that. Where's LG Chem going to get, you know, these tons from? At the same time, they're saying, you know, thrown in the towel that, you know, Namaska is screwed. I, I don't, it doesn't make sense. Like LG Chem should fund Namaska. SoftBank should fund Namaska. The question is, do they have faith in Namaska, right? Because they have come up with, you know, a big cost overrun. Well, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe it was under-engineered. Maybe, I mean, the excuses that they used about 50% of their labor. So when they put together a feasibility study and they assumed we're going to get 100% of our employees locally, was that an aggressive assumption? In hindsight, it was. Remote locations are difficult to do business in. You need to fly in, fly out employees. In the Pilbara, Albemarle is going to confront that. Climate is an underestimated risk. Cold locations are hard. Rainy locations are hard. High altitude locations are hard. Super dry locations are hard and have ecological water considerations. Should Damascus have started first with spodumene production only? I think it should have in 2015, 2016, 2017, you know, when Pilbara was racing to get into production, they'd be in production of spodumene right now if they had focused on that. But it's probably too late because spodumene prices are too low and uneconomic to get financed for just that today. Hindsight's 2020. And I'm not a big believer in new technology. I, I much prefer conventional technology. But, but if there were ever a place where you could, you know, tweak or apply a technology, it should be in, in, in hard rock hydroxide. But this cost overrun has nothing to do with that. This cost overrun has to do with the fact that they underestimated that they would have to fly in, fly out uh, employees. Uh, they do need some additional steel. Now, I was questioning that. When you do a definitive feasibility study, you're doing it kind of on hard estimates, but Things like steel, uh, you, you, the sellers of steel don't sell you forward, you know, very long-term contract. It's only, you know, when you get to the stage of production that Namaska's at that you know that. It's better to find this out now than to have bought all the steel and then put it in place and realize that, you, you know, you had the wrong steel. I was involved to a degree in the early days with Namaska and their funding. So the fact that they got this funded... In May of last year, I remember when I wrote my first lithium bull in January of 2017, I was expecting that they and Bacanora, you know, and North American Lithium and LAC would all get funded in 2017. Only LAC got funded in 2017. North American Lithium is a more complicated story. Uh, Namaska thought they'd get funded by February, but they only got funded in May. Therefore, construction started later. And again, cold hard fact, it's a cold climate. These things happen. The fact that the rock is, 
you know, harder than they thought. It was a little bit ambiguous on, on the on the Mayan side. I, I don't fully understand that. We'll have more details at the end of February. Uh, clearly, 100%, you know, a bit of a black eye to Namaska that this cost overrun is as big as, as it is. But anyone who's done anything in mining realizes that this is not a meaningful uh, cost overrun in, in the, the larger scheme of thing and should not necessarily be the death knell for Namaska and this project. Like the scenario analyzed now, what happens to Namaska? They have 90 days and another bit of bad news today, a termination with Livent on the carbonate that they were supposed to be delivering by April. That was supposed to be renegotiated and uh, seems to have ended uh, in arbitration. This is an advanced permitted project. What now? The project is high capital intensity, some $33,000 a ton. A lot of the costs are already sunk. And Albemarle is essentially in acquisition cost and CapEx at Wajina paying $40,000 a ton. And that project's likely to be second or third quartile on the cost curve compared to Namaska's promise as being the lowest cost. So this is still a viable project in my opinion. In another world, like why wouldn't Albemarle come in now and take over the Namaska project? If they could just bolt on their hydroxide expertise, you know, from their Chinese plant that is processing green bushes and putting that into Wajina, why couldn't they use that same technology for hydroxide in Quebec and come in here at a distressed, you know, kind of valuation? something that's, uh, you know, maybe a third built. I, I don't think this is going to happen. I think they're way down the line with kind of mineral resources. But, you know, why wouldn't they take over this project? You know, it, the, the mine, Wabuchi mine, is a higher grade mine than the Wajina mine. It, it may be smaller, but it's still sizable. There's two people in every negotiation, and I don't know what the expectations or the... Um or where everyone stands on the Namaska side, you know, in terms of trying to keep it. They've said there are a number of reasons and rationales why they said this thing has to stay as it is, as a, as a, um, as a full, a vertically integrated solution. There were a couple of issues around the, um, around the spodumen only, I guess. There's no ways, in terms of shipping it, when we spoke to give $75 to $100 a ton, and to get it to China. Yeah, um, I don't think there's a spodumen-only solution, uh, given where spodumen prices are. Uh, there could be a solution with North American lithium, which CATL is, was, you know, it's kind of involved there. It's a bit murky, but th that project was always a, a, a problematic mine, you know, lower-grade mine. So Wabuchi is, uh, you know, a better ore quality. But, you know, they have a converter or, or a conventional carbonate converter that uh, is mostly built. I understand it needs, you know, maybe another $100, $150 million. But there is a potential outcome here. I, I, not, I don't think this is uh, highly likely or, or, or base case, but a, a scenario in which you know, the Quebec government's involved in both companies. Um, you, you know, if Guy and Namaska are not successful in raising the $375 million, 
uh, and proceeding with the project as precisely planned, there could be an outcome where, you know, they finance the, the Wabuchi mine portion and then finance separately the carbonate plant at uh, North American Lithium. And uh, it'll be lower CapEx. You know, there may be other parties here um, involved. But th th that's, a, that's a potential outcome. But, and we went to kind of strategics. New people coming to the table is what Guy said might happen here. Um, if, you, if you look at the world, I mean, this is an, a permitted project in a good jurisdiction that's relatively advanced. And, you know, there's no doubt about the ore quality at Wabuchi. And at the same time, the, the phase one plant is producing high quality, uh, high quality product. I had thought that Livent would want some hard rock in their mix, but uh, given today's arbitration, they're not a suitor. But uh, what about Oracobre? Galaxy has James Bay, Tangshi, or Ganfeng even. Scenario here is like SoftBank came in here as a major equity holder. They wrote a hundred million dollar check at a dollar twelve, and have like a nine percent stake. I tweeted, you know, just three days ago they invested something like nine hundred seventy million dollars in a, an autonomous vehicle startup. You know, they're invested with GM and in, in Cruise, so they have a very significant belief in this thematic. Their investment in Namaska was pioneering in a lot of ways in that venture. You know, someone outside the mining sector or chemical sector is taking a a bit of a venture capital bet on uh, you know the security of supply, and I think what they do in this process is critical for Namaska. Okay, Rodney, I'm reading here from the Livent conference call, Paul Graves saying as follows, we believe that the price at which lithium hydroxide will ultimately supply it in China will be in line with our prior expectations given what we see in terms of demand compared to available qualified supply. As of this time, however, it appears that customers in China have elected to delay their purchasing decisions until they have greater clarity on market conditions. Faced with these dynamics, we made the decision that we would contract a greater proportion of our volumes to customers in Japan and Korea than we had previously planned. There's definitely some financial restrictions or restraints in China that is changing their patterns. The Asian ex-China markets like Korea and Japan are more likely to have uh, longer-term timeframes for their planning of, of supply whereas in China they run it fairly fast and loose, uh, depending on, on the financial restrictions at the time. Given the increase in production coming out of Ganfen and others, that um, the hydroxide market in China is going to be well supplied and they're going to export. But it does remain an enormous market. Uh, the domestic you know, battery Capacity in China is 65% of global capacity and so on. So it's not a market to be ignored, um, you know, in terms of, of what's happening there. And, you know, if guys are producing battery quality, then it's unlikely that you can have some form of an arbitrage or a premium situation elsewhere without them responding to that and supplying into that. 
like the margin hit to live end in the quarter was very significantly because they had to pay 16% VAT on the export of their hydroxide to Korea and Japan. They mentioned that they're going to make a final investment decision very soon on their Bessemer City, North Carolina hydroxide plant. And if that facility was in operation today, presumably they would sell from that facility to Korea and Japan and not bear that kind of 16 or 17 percent, you know, VAT Chinese export tax. And, so, and, that is, and, and, and that is a valid comment because uh, they are not, it's not like they are treating, you know, and, and having any sort of improved operational leverage of some kind of a hard rock, et cetera. That is straight carbonate coming from Argentina and then just being processed and shipped out. So that would likely result in a direct saving for them if they did it in the U.S. Right. It's going to be interesting for Livin because I, I think this, the Chinese situation is not going away. Uh, if you look at the amount of spodium and concentrate sailing its way towards China and you look at the forecast of supply and demand, it's likely that uh, China is going to be in an oversupply situation and a net exporter for some time. I'd like to comment on Albemarle just a bit. I'm a big supporter of this industry. I have a bias toward wanting Albemarle to succeed and Livent to succeed. This whole debate with Corfo on the pricing and it was threatened to go to arbitration, et cetera, and country manager, someone who has been a dedicated civil servant, uh, spent the last six years of her career promoting free trade between America and Chile. Uh, on balance, we've had positive news out of Albemarle in the Atacama, which has been a surprise to some, but, you know, it's not so much a surprise to me, you know, because I've, I've looked at it as, you know, Albemarle's negotiating. So if we can conclude on one thing that I missed significantly last year, I was told, you know, we only really need to look at chemical prices, right? And we only need, you know, just look at SQM's price, right? And, and Lithium Americas has this great, you know, chart, which, which, which shows, you know, SQM's contract pricing kind of going up, up and up. But we were told to ignore, you know, the China spot market, right? And that was the one that was kind of going down, 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 you know, and still has kind of, you know, is going down or flatlining. And I think we're closer to the end uh, of the, the decline. And I think we, as we talked earlier, if we get a trade resolution, we get some resolution on the um, new subsidies in China, we we could be in for, you know, an uptick in prices and an uptick in sentiment. So, uh, again, I, I'm more optimistic in the nearer term than, than some of our peers. But the indicator that I'm watching most closely are, you know, the weekly spot prices in China. Do you agree with that soliloquy? There is going to be, I think, a slight oversupply in the near term. But the question is, you know, what material is in slight oversupply? We're seeing a lot of technical grade that isn't wanted. And, you know, some of it from the brines, some of it will be from 
Swadjum and Concentrate coming from Australia where the technical expertise just isn't up to it. So you will have a differential there, but we, uh, I think there is, there, is a, there is a small window here where we're likely to see uh, some oversupply uh, in the near term, not, not massively, but you know, ever so slightly. And um, you know, that could still, that could, you know, the China spot price could still come under further pressure. Mm -hmm. We shall see on the timing of it, but uh, with all the demand and all of the supply constraints and, you know, probably a dichotomy of battery quality versus non-battery quality, I mean, I'm seeing some ingredients here for a, a significant price spike and shortage somewhere down the line if demand continues to uh, grow as fast as, as it has. Look, and th there's, there's absolutely no doubt that um, sort of in the midterm, if you are having the learning curve that uh, the Bloomberg's new energy finance is projecting of 19% for every doubling of capacity and then you translate that number across into Benchmark Minerals Megafactory Tracker and I think they're up to 1,600 gigawatts now by 2028. So, you know, even their uh, even their uh, 2023 number, I think, is 900 gigawatts compared to where we are now. It's an astronomical jump. So you could see. There's no doubt that the that the falling price in batteries, if it's 19% for every doubling of capacity, you could see. You know, very a very compelling price per kilowatt hour. To boost, especially again, the segment that I keep banging on about is energy storage, because renewables still keeps doing well. We still keep seeing, even uh, I see BP uh, looking at uh, the majority of, of energy to be generated by renewables by 2040 and so on. You're going to need uh, the energy storage systems to go with that. Obviously, it's not all lithium iron, but a, a fair share could be done, especially if if the cost of uh, batteries fall. In Lithium Ion Rocks, Lithium Ion Bull, and through our respective LinkedIn and Twitter posts, Rodney and I may share with our audience some rationale for a stock for which we have conviction, to own or not to own. If you agree or disagree with and act on or against the rationale of anything said or written in this or any other lithium-ion rocks or lithium-ion bull, that's your free choice. But to be clear, what you are listening to or reading is not investment advice and may not be unbiased. It should not be construed as an investment recommendation to buy or sell any security. Rodney and I are not registered investment advisors nor broker-dealers. Please visit libull.com for further disclaimers.